One of the ways that we have of uh, identifying animals are the things that make them unique, things that make them look unique, the, the, the markings that distinguish them. And uh, I know our, our youngest sons are getting into this, especially our youngest one now, looking at books and looking at animals and starting to distinguish those animals from each other. For instance, they're able to tell a, a panther uh, apart from tigers and leopards by their fur. All of them are cats, but we all know that panthers have black fur, and tigers have stripes, and leopards have spots. That's the way to tell them apart. If it wasn't for that, they'd look relatively the same. They, they're all cats. And we were just doing the same thing with the other day when, as we were visiting some friends in, in Okotoks, and they had these bird feeders out there, being able to tell these different birds apart by, by the different markings that they have, or, or different colors of their feathers, or or whatever it might be. When police look for a criminal on the loose, they'll often give a description to help the public locate this person. And they'll say things like, he's got brown hair, blue eyes, he's got a scar over his left eye, and he's got a tattoo on his, left, on his right arm. If you have any information on the whereabouts of this individual, then it'll tell you to call this number. So it's a way for the public to identify this criminal if they see him by the things that make him distinct. Well, those are all physical markings that can help us identify certain things. But in the Christian life, we also have distinguishing marks. The Bible tells us that we ought to be different than the world uh, around us. There should be things that make us stand out from the world, things that uh, distinguish us. Now, for Christians, those aren't physical markings. And, you know, there is people that wear T-shirts all the time, those sort of things. But uh, typically, it's not only that. There should be aspects of our character. Aspects about our actions or our attitudes that separate us from the world that should be able to help people understand or, or look at us and, and hear us and see us and say, ah, that person must be a follower of Christ. And the Bible tells us that one of the main distinguishing marks of a Christian is the way in which we treat each other, the way in which we treat other Christians. And especially, it talks a lot about how we ought to love one another. The Bible calls it um, brotherly love. And it's talking about our love for each other in the family of God, within this circle of people who are believers. It's talking about our love for each other. This is a, a command to the church. Jesus says it to his disciples, and we can find it in lots of places in the New Testament. I think the place where it's found most often is in 1 John. But I want to read it today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And I'm hoping that this might come as an encouragement for us as we sort of uh, get up out of the starting blocks here in uh, 2015 on this first Lord's Day. And it would be great if this attitude would sort of set the tone for our church as we go through 2015. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 in just two verses. Verse 9. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. When I looked at Paul's words, those words that say you have no need for anyone to write to you to love one another, I thought, he, he gets it exactly right. 
fact that we are to love one another, this is, we all know this. We all assume this is what Christians are supposed to be like. This is one of the basics. But from time to time, I think it's always good to be reminded of the basics, isn't it? And so I thought it'd be good to get a reminder at the beginning of the year from God to be the kind of church where we treat each other with an attitude of love and of grace and of forgiveness and of encouragement, of care, of kindness. Now, I know in our church, we have a great church. I know you're already doing this. But like Paul, I want to urge you to do it more and more. It's not that we aren't doing it already, but we could still be doing more. How we love each other is one of our distinguishing marks as Christians. And here's why. Number one, brotherly love is an important part of our new identity in Christ. Brotherly love is an important part of our new identity in Christ. We've all been created with the ability to love in a uniquely Christian way. An ability that we didn't have before we became believers. As I read before, we are new creations. The old has gone, the new has come. We, we have been given a new heart. And part of that new heart is new affections. We have now the ability to love other Christians. And again, we're talking specifically here about love for other believers. Now, let me just say right at the outset here that we need to exemplify that kind of love, or, or at least we need to love unbelievers too. If you go back just one chapter to 1, Corinthians, or 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12, it says, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another, there's that again, and for all people. So he separates them. You need to love one another, and you need to have love for all people, just as we also do for you. And so we need to love unbelievers, but the primary direction of our love should be towards our fellow Christians. That's really what it says there. When it says brotherly love, and back in chapter 4, verse 9, uh, those are two words in English, but it's just one word in the original language. It's the word that you will recognize. It's a familiar word, the word Philadelphia. You know that word from the American city, which interestingly enough is nicknamed the city of brotherly love. Every time that word is used in the New Testament, it always means uh, sort of a, a horizontal love. It means love to a fellow Christian. And so when Paul says, now as to love for the brethren, in verse 9, he means our love for our brothers and sisters in the church. Now back in that culture, that word was used, it, it was mainly meant as, as an attachment to one's blood relatives. An attachment to one's blood relatives. But the early Christians took that word and they extended it to mean the church. So they took it from a, a blood relative word to a, a sort of religious family word. Because we're all a spiritual family, right? We learned about that last week. We're all God's children. We're the family of God. We are, we've been adopted into God's family. So it's about brotherly or sisterly love. Love among the family. And by virtue of you being saved into God's family, you now have the ability to love other Christians. And so we talked about Galatians 5 with the children. The first characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love, joy, peace, and on it goes. 
Love is right at the top of the list of those attributes that characterize Christians. God has saved us in order to love others. And so, so really none of us can say, you can't look across the room and say that Christian over there is unlovable. That's impossible. When you became a follower of Christ, you were given a new capacity to love other believers in a supernatural sort of way, even though you don't have maybe those same affinities. You have been recreated to love. It's part of your new nature. Paul tells the Thessalonians in verse 9 that you have been taught by God to love one another. Interesting words. What does he mean by that? Well, for the most part, you just need to know that these are Gentile Christians in Thessalonica. They've, they haven't been taught what to do from the Old Testament, as Jewish believers would have been. They're Gentiles. They don't know anything about the Old Testament. But it says there that they've been taught by God to love. How? Well, I think it's by virtue of their conversion. By virtue of the fact that, uh, that Christ now lives in them in the person of God, the Holy Spirit. And so they, are, they have been taught and they are being taught to love in the supernatural way by God. And it's the same with you. As soon as you became a Christian, we could say, if you want to talk about these sort of images of being taught by God, that you became a lifetime pupil in the school of God. You were taught by God. We, we conduct ourselves according to our, our new identity. We try to live out what God has given us now the ability to do. As a church, it's part of our collective new identity to love each other. And so when you became a believer, when you became a a Christian, along with all the benefits of becoming a believer, the fact that you've got eternal life, the fact that you have the Holy Spirit now living in you, you also received a brand new set of affections. Before, before Christ, our affections were directed in worldly kinds of pursuits, where we had, um, you know, for one example, we had the kind of love that always expects something back. It was a a self-motivated kind of love. But now those affections are redirected towards God and his people. And instead of being self-centered, they become others-centered. The Apostle John makes it real clear when he writes over and over again in 1 John to love one another. And he says that this love comes from God. In, in chapter 4, verse 19, he says, We love because God first loved us. We have the ability to love, not on our own, we didn't have it before, but now we love because God first set his love on us. And he so, says if, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he, he's a liar. So you can't say, again, that that person over there is unlovable. That would be lying. John is saying that being unloving toward a brother and sister in any way is not consistent with who God is. And who a Christian indwelled by God, uh, taught by God, who a Christian ought to be. It doesn't make sense to be a Christian and yet say, I don't love that brother or sister in the Lord. Now, As we say that, we have to remember that I don't think um, Paul here is saying that this is going to be easy. There's going to be a constant conflict in your affections. Even though we have a new nature and a new heart, we all know that we still 
live at war with our old selves. There's a constant battle in our affections. That's what John's talking about. Hatred comes from our old nature. In 1 John 2, he says we should not love the world. Again, that's part of our old nature. We, we, before, we, our affections were always directed towards the world. But our love isn't supposed to travel in that direction anymore. If we've been truly converted, those same affections will be redirected toward each other in acts of self-sacrificing kindness to other people in the church. So it is a battle. But we have to realize that love is, is an outgrowth of the fact that we're believers. Uh, Romans 5, 5, great verse, says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. It's been poured into our hearts. Again, the, the ability is there. Love should then supernaturally burst out of us. Not, not our own love, because that's imperfect, but God's perfect love that's been set in, in us should then flow out. Oswald Chambers, he writes, that the nature of love is spontaneity. And looking back, we can't tell why we did certain things. We did them according to the spontaneous nature of God's love in us. The life of God, he says, manifests itself in spontaneous ways because the springs of love are in the Holy Spirit. So it comes out. We don't know why sometimes, but we can look back and say, I know why I did that, even though it's not natural. I did that because God's love is in me. That's what happens. We have the ability to love built into us, and then we just do it to the point that sometimes we don't even know that we did it. Ever have that happen? You, you na just naturally did something. It was sacrificial in the whole bit, but you didn't even think about it, that it was such a big deal until someone said something to you about it. Loving acts are built into our new nature. We see a need, and sometimes, and we, and we just respond spontaneously. Well, that response is a supernatural response. When you do that, just think about the fact that that doesn't happen naturally. That happens because of what's happened to you in Christ. That Christ is in you now. And that's why you respond in that way. Brotherly love is an integral part of your new identity and your new ability in Christ. Secondly, brotherly love is to be practiced with excellence. Paul says, concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God. And then he commends them for practicing love throughout the whole province of Macedonia. And then he says something interesting. He just told them, you're doing great with this brotherly love deal. And then he says, but we want you to do this more and more. We want you to do this more and more. The New American Standard Version says we want you to excel still more. Now, we don't really know what the circumstances are that are happening here in Thessalonica and the church there, but it could be that they were practicing love, but that they had stopped for one reason or another. Again, back in chapter 3, verse 10, it says we keep praying that we can come and complete what's lacking in your faith. It might be that they just let up a bit. I don't think he's criticizing him, them here. In fact, 1 Thessalonians is probably one of his most encouraging letters, unlike 1 Corinthians, which we studied uh, quite a bit last year. But here he's encouraging them. 
and he's not really criticizing them. He's just, you're, you're just lacking a little, a little bit. He says, he, he says, you can do even better. He's, he's pushing them to excel. He, he wants them to keep progressing and to make love second nature to them. I encourage you to do this more and more. Keep being other-centered. Keep, don't, don't get discouraged when your acts of kindness or your acts of love aren't, aren't noticed or when they aren't returned. Keep going. Keep doing it. Keep loving. Press on. Well, this is being written to the church here in Thessalonica, but it's also being written to the church in Wetaskiwin. God is saying, hey, you're doing a, a great job of loving one another. It's great that you're making meals for, for, for people when they just come out of the hospital. I love that idea where, where the, the ladies give gifts at Christmas to those who are grieving. And the prayer chain? Great way for praying for needs. Care groups, fantastic. Keep doing it. But keep going. Don't stop there. Keep, keep thinking of ways to love each other. They don't have to be organized or, or programmed. Let, but make love for one another part of the fabric of, of who you are. Go for it. You might say, what, what kind of love is this talking about? What, what does it look like? Is, is it just an, an emotion? The way our world portrays love? Well, that doesn't seem to be the biblical idea at all. And you can look through all, a lot of passages about that. 1 Corinthians 13 being an example. But a love that excels translates into action. The best illustration we have comes from Jesus in John 13. You'll know this account. In verse 1, we find out that Jesus is going to teach them about love. And it says there, John 13, verse 1, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And then he illustrates love. And this is the passage where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And just for some quick background, that all happened uh, in the upper room, just before what we did now, just before the Lord's Supper, just before they had a meal. In those days, when you ate any kind of meal, uh, you reclined, and, and so your feet were up, kind of, and your feet in those days were either muddy or dusty because it was either dry or wet, and there were no roads in those days. And, and they wore sandals, and so it was a common custom that when you came into a meal, that your feet would get cleaned by someone in the house. Somebody at the door would, would normally do that. But the person that would do that would be really sort of at the bottom of the rung. The, the lowest level of slavery was, uh, was the, had the, the lowest slave, I guess, had the job of washing feet. Whoever the foot washing guy was, was sort of the new guy. And apparently here in John 13, when the disciples were there, none of them had their feet washed. And so we can sort of surmise that there was probably no slave there to do that. And none of them volunteered. <laughs> if you look at some of the other passages that, uh, that sort of talk about the same instance, it was, it was right around the time that these uh, 12 guys were having a debate among them about which of them was the greatest in the kingdom. And so at the same time that they were arguing about who was the greatest, none of them was willing to get down to wash someone's feet. But then Jesus, of all people, their Lord, wanting to demonstrate love, it says, he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel began to wash the disciples' feet. 
And then sort of at the end of that account, Jesus says, you call me teacher and Lord, for you are right. And you are right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, having, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So what does love for one another that excels look like? Well, if this is the example, then it involves sacrifice. It involves being slave-like, servant-like. It involves going low. It involves humility. Jesus' personal example is a great lesson on how love acts. Love does things. It's an action. Christian love that excels meets needs at the lowliest, uh, most base level. That's what Jesus is teaching here. It's connected to, to humility. It's connected to selfless sacrifice. It's going to cost something. So the biblical definition of love within the church is meeting a person at the level of their need, no matter how humbling it might be. It's the kind of love that will give over and over again with no concern for, for a return, for reciprocation. And that brings us to the final point of why brotherly love is a distinguishing mark of the Christian. It's actually here a bonus outcome, an unexpected outcome. Christian love is a way to make ourselves known to the world. So as we keep sort of tracking what it means to love one another, it's interesting that it starts having an effect even outside of our circles. It is a love for one another inside the church, but it has... An, an outside sort of benefit. We find out that other people watch how we behave toward each other. They're watching to see how Christians treat each other. And so we looked at the beginning of John 13, but close to the end of that chapter, we see an application of Jesus' example of love. He says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. He gave us the example, but now we have to do it to each other. And then Jesus says this, By this, all people, so not just believers, not just you, followers, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now that brings a little bit more gravity and, and weight to this call to love, doesn't it? The way they will know that we follow Christ is how we treat each other. Remember those distinguishing marks we talked about at the beginning? Love, a brotherly love, will identify us to other people as Christians. Just like spots identify a leopard. This kind of love that we've been talking about, the kind that gives, the kind that sacrifices, the kind that, that reaches down to the most lowliest places, is countercultural. It, it's counterintuitive for our world. The kind of love that we see in our culture is self-absorbed. It's a, it's a love that constantly takes, but rarely gives. And if it does give, it always expects something in return. Christian love is the opposite of that. And Christian love is the kind of love that not only sets us apart from the world, it actually makes the world now take notice. We see this kind of love in the early church in Acts, where people were sharing their possessions. In Acts 4.34, there was not a needy person among them. And a little later, around 200 A.D., there was a writer by the name of Tertullian who, who quoted a non-Christian that wrote, Behold how those Christians love one another. It was a mark of the early church, and any observer could see it right away. 
It was this sort of love in action that had an impact on the world this year. So how does this translate into our lives? Is it possible for us to treat each other in a way where God might even use our, our uh, God-empowered love to open other people's eyes to the gospel? If so, how can it happen? Well, when I was looking at those last verses in John 13, where Jesus says, by this all men will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another, it brought up a question. How can we love each other so that the world sees it? When do people that aren't believers see how we act around each other? When do they do that? How, how will they ever notice that we love one another? Well, here's one thing that came to me, fairly obvious, is that this can't just happen on Sunday morning at church. Sure, non-Christians come into our church here and there, and we're glad that God brings them in, and we want to be faithful to, to, to present the gospel to them, but we were not meant to only be together on the Lord's Day. The early church in Acts, it says, were continually devoting themselves to, to teaching and to fellowship and, and breaking bread and prayer. That's Acts 2.42, and in Acts 2.46, it says that, that this was happening day by day. Sometimes we think we've done our spiritual duty for the week if we've just gone to church on Sunday. Well, I hope that's not your perspective of what the church should be. We should have a desire to be together, to be, to be a loving community of believers that gives and that shares and that cares and, and that sacrifices and that studies together and that prays together. And that helps one another. We could go on and on on that list. That's what a biblically functioning community should look like. In other words, we need to be the church when we're not at church. We should be demonstrating our love for one another during the week. And when that happens, the world out there will begin to take notice. That's what Jesus says. So what are some specific ways we can love each other where other folks might take notice. Well, here's one. I know that when some of our people are in the hospital and get lots of visitors, uh, the people in the, in the next bed or the staff will take notice. They probably think things like, wow, they sure have a lot of people that care for them. Listen, most people out there don't have that kind of a care network. And so they start noticing that there's something different happening there. Those folks from the church, they sure love each other and care for each other. What are they doing? Why would they do that? It's supernatural. Another way we show our love is by being there for significant events in people's lives. I remember a few years ago when we lived down in the Calgary area, someone um, in our church had, had his father pass away up here in Sherwood Park. Well, he was involved, he was part of a, a, a small group, a care group, and when the funeral came, almost his whole group showed up for the funeral. And I was, went along as well, and we went to the, to the house afterwards for some uh, refreshments, and I remember hearing, hearing a bunch of comments, and, and the family were not believers, of how, of how neat it was that a bunch of people from the church would come up to support uh, the son of that man who died. They will know we are Christians by your love. Show your love by being there for significant events in one another's lives. While there are lots more examples of things we can do for each other that will witness to the world, I'm just sort of scratching the surface here, but, but 
that's the sort of meat and potato stuff that we're talking about here, going out of our way to meet people's needs. And not only does that fulfill our mandate to love one another, but a byproduct of all this is that the unchurched start to take notice. I mentioned the early church in Acts 2. Well, after it says that they were together from day by day and were meeting needs and sharing possessions and eating together, the last sentence of chapter 2 says, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. All they were doing was loving one another. And the Lord used that to attract people to the church. We, we have to give them the gospel at some point. We have to use words. But that might be their initial sort of interest in the church. And the Lord might use that in people's hearts. Our role is to love each other. But God could take those things to add people to his church. Well, how could we love one another in 2015 as we close here? The, the first thing I'd suggest is that we need to be involved with one another. And so, as we talk about this Christian brotherly love, here are some questions you should ask yourself on how you're doing. Do you honestly care about other believers? Very basic question. Or would you be more characterized by being unconcerned or indifferent? Ask yourself that. How do you respond to opportunities that you have to give of your time and your talents? Do you see other people's needs uh, when they come up? Do you see that as, oh, they deserve that? That's their own fault. That's something they brought upon themselves. It's not my concern. Or does it give you joy when you come across a person or a ministry in need and you're able to provide money or, or time or your talent or skill, uh, any skill or a listening ear? Are you willing to give yourself away to people? How about in your relationships within the church? Are are you willing to admit when you've wronged someone? Or are you willing to forgive someone when you were wronged? And again, here we just have to look at what Christ did for us and and then ask ourselves, how could we do any less? If there's something that's hindering your fellowship with someone, fix it. That's what it means to examine yourself before we partake of the Lord's Supper. And that's the kind of brotherly love that excels and, and abounds. Like I said before, all of this goes against the grain of our culture. Unselfishness, selflessness goes against the grain of everything in our society. But that's the kind of conduct that Paul is calling the church at Thessalonica and the church at Wetasco in two. If you want to follow Christ's example in 2015, strive to develop a servant's heart. You have been recreated in Christ for that purpose. You can do it. You have the ability, the supernatural ability to do that. So exercise it. Be on the lookout for people's needs. Be willing to give. Be willing to sacrifice. Be thoughtful. Care. Be gracious. Visit. Share your stuff. Those are the kinds of things that will distinguish us from the world. That will make people say, whoa, what's going on with them over there with Asquin Mission Church? Our Father God, we thank you for this very basic, yet extremely profound reminder that we ought to be the kind of people that love one another and that care for one another. Help us to think about tangible ways to express that love. Help us not to be content. Help us especially as we enter a new year to to resolve to be outward focused, 
to resolve to love just as Christ loved us. We know that kind of love isn't natural. It, it takes effort. But we can do all things as we are strengthened by you and as we are taught by you and as we, as we look to Christ. Help us to be a church that's marked by how we love one another. And if you would be pleased to allow the world to notice our love, we would give you the glory. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus.